preparation, the proclamation of this word. May your people gain strength. May we all grow from it. And most of all, Father, may you be glorified in the marvelous name of Jesus Christ, we pray. And the church said, Amen. Amen. Good to see everybody this morning. It's a great day uh, to be alive and to be in the house of God and to hear a word from the Lord. I invite you once again to turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 15. And today I want to read uh, verses 22 and 23 from the New King James Version. So Samuel said, has the Lord as great as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness is an iniquity and adultery because you have rejected the word of the Lord. He has rejected you as king. And today I want to preach part two of a sermon entitled Saul's Example, a formula for failure. Saul's example, a formula for failure. Chaplain Ron Million, uh, my first supervisor as an Air Force chaplain, said to me one day in his office, he said, Linnell, from some people you learn how not to be. And what an initiation for me into the United States Air Force chaplain service. And he was so true. There were a number of chaplains and a number of people who set good examples. But then there were some people who even wore the cross that were bad examples to follow. Saul was the first king of Israel. Um, the people went to Samuel, went to God, and, and, and they said, we, you know, we want a king like the other nations have a king. And Samuel uh, called for Saul, and he anointed Saul as king, as the first king of Israel. Saul had it made. I mean, God just set the stage. I mean, he had everything going for himself. But as the scripture says, he was fired. God rejected him. And so, and so we want to look at the reasons, the rationales why he was fired. And in so doing, go in the other opposite direction. Amen. As my father-in-law used to say, when we know better, we do better. And so now let's turn our attention to the book of 1 Samuel chapter 13. Again, where the Philistines are assembled to fight against Israel. This, this, this modern uh, by their standards, powerful army equipped with fighting, uh, 3,000 chariots, 6,000 chariot drivers, soldiers, the Bible says, as numerous as the sand on the seashore. They were all poised, ready to attack Israel. And the men of Israel were hard-pressed. They were afraid. They ran. They hid in caves. They hid in thickets. They hid in rocks. They hid in pits. They hid in cisterns. Wherever they could find a hiding place is where they went. And so it was to make matters worse, their king, their leader, Saul, was in Gilgal with some troops. And the Bible says he was quaking in fear. Now, that's one thing for the troops to be fearful. It's something else for the leader, for the commander to be shaken in his boots. 
And so in chapter 10, verse 8, Samuel the prophet had instructed Saul to wait for him to come in order to offer a sacrifice. The sacrifice before battle was offered in order to get a clear direction from God. Where should we go? What should we do? How should we launch this attack? What's the best strategy? And so Samuel didn't come when Saul expected him to come. And so Saul stepped into Samuel's shoes. And he made a sacrifice. He made a sacrifice. Now, he was not a king. He was not a, a priest. He was a king. He was not consecrated. He was not called to be a priest. But he stepped into the priestly role. And just as he was finishing making the offering, Samuel the prophet came back. And he greeted him. And he said in verse 11, what have you done? Now, you can feel the intensity of this question. This is not, this, this is not um, a, a question of convenience and comfort. I mean, he has really had some serious concerns. What have you done? If this is a rhetorical question. Samuel knew what he had done. He wanted Saul to face what he had done. Saul replied, when I saw that the people were scattered from me, and that you did not come within the days appointed, and the, that the Philistines were gathered together at mishmash. Then I said, the Philistines will now come down, from, come down and attack me, and, and I have not made supplication to the Lord. And here's the key verse again. Therefore I felt compelled and offered the burnt offering. Notice verse, he said, I felt compelled. The, the first ingredient again, is in, in Saul's formula for failure, is that he was motivated by his feelings. Motivated by his feelings. The first, the first ingredient in his formula for failure was that this great king allowed the feelings of his life to be in the driver's seat of his life. Now, the truth of the matter is, regardless of how Saul felt, and regardless of the situation and regardless how, of how bad things look and regardless of how much power the Phil Philistine army had, he should not have made a critical decision based solely upon his feelings. Feelings are never any justification for disobeying God. In regardless of how we feel, it is never an excuse. Never a rationale, good rationale, never a reason to disobey God. Now, the greatest example of, of uh, overcoming the power of feelings, because we all have feelings. Feelings have their place. Everybody has feelings. Jesus had feelings. And so the greatest example of, of overcoming the power of feelings and Overcoming the power of emotions and obeying the will of God is found in the life of Jesus. In Matthew 26 and verses 36 through 40, Jesus is there agonizing in the garden of Gethsemane. And he's, he's, looking, he's looking onward up and upward and he sees Calvary and he knows the impact of the cross and he knows what it's going to be like. Um, to experience this agonizing death on Calvary's cross. And he said in a prayer to the Father, he said, Father, if it be possible, 
If there's another way, if there's another avenue, if, if, there's, another, if there's another option, a choice, he said, let this cup pass from me. And then he comes back and he says, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. He makes his way on then towards Calvary. And in the process of his trip, soldiers spit on him. Soldiers spit on him. One, one gospel writer says a soldier spat in his face. He spat on him. He was cursed. Imagine, imagine the intense feelings of being, being, being cursed being lied upon, being falsely accused, being spat upon, being beaten, the feelings, the emotions, the, the trauma, the drama that goes along with that. Nevertheless, Jesus chose not to allow feelings, the feelings of rejection, the feelings of pain, the feelings of agony, the feelings of being separated from his father for a season, the feelings of paying for your sin debt and mine. Jesus refused to allow those feelings to be in the driver's seat of his decision-making processes. And as a result, he went straight to Calvary. He suffered and he bled and he died. He paid for our sins on Calvary's cross, and then he rose victoriously from the grave with all power. And even after resurrection, he refused to allow his feelings to push the vengeance button. And as a result, he set in motion a series of events that led to multitudes of sinners being saved and people are still being saved today because he refused to allow feelings to drive his decision-making processes. Now, had that been some, perhaps, of us, we were done wrong, we were falsely accused, we were criticized, when we came into our kingdom, when we got that power in our hands, perhaps feelings would have driven some of us to retaliate. The shoe is now on the other foot. I'm now in the driver's seat. It's time now for payback, but not Jesus. And so first, Saul was, was, was motivated by feelings. But secondly, we learned he was stimulated by fortune. Wealth and riches and possessions and stuff had blown his mind. It's like people who never had anything. And then all of a sudden, they, they come into all of this money and all of this fame and all of this wealth, and they just go plumb crazy. And so chapter 15, verses 1 through 2. Three states, Samuel said to Saul, I am the one the Lord sent to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now listen to the message from the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty says. 
I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came from Egypt. In other words, God says, I'm going to punish them for the damage, the hurt, the pain that they caused Israel. Now, he says to Saul, go and attack the Amalekites and totally destroy everything. Totally means totally. Everything means everything. He says, everything that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. But what did Saul do? He spared the life of King Agag, king of the Amalekites. And apparently he didn't kill them all because later Hezekiah had to deal with them. In fact, King Ahag had a descendant who actually went to tell David that Saul was dead and claimed that he had killed Saul and then David killed him. But he spared the life of King Agag and he kept the best of the sheep and the cattle, the fat calves, the lambs and everything that was good. Verse 9 reveals These, they were unwilling to destroy completely, but everything that was despised and weak, they totally destroyed. Now, at this place in his life, the accumulation of wealth is the top priority for Saul. The more stuff he can get, the more things he could accumulate, the wealthier he became, the better he felt. Sheep and oxen and animals and livestock was a symbol, were a symbol of a king's wealth. And so he kept all of this stuff for himself. And verse 10 records um, God's response for Saul's rebellious behavior. God said, I am grieved that I made Saul king because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. Clear principle for us is keep stuff in the proper place. Third, Saul was intoxicated by fame. First, he's motivated by feeling. Second, he's stimulated by fortune. Third, he's intoxicated by fame. Simply notoriety, praise. Celebrity status, recognition, all of this stuff had gone to his head. And in verse 12, early in the morning, Samuel got up. He went to meet Saul. But when he got there, the people told him Saul has gone to Carmel to build a monument unto himself. What a contrast to Moses, who built monument to say to God how great thou art. To say to the people, don't look at me. Don't look at what I have done. But look at God and what God has done. But Saul built the monument to himself. And Saul's monument said, To the people, don't look at God. 
Look at me. Don't look at what God has accomplished through me. Look at what I have accomplished in and of my own self. My strength, my power, my training. I did it. Saul built a monument to give credit and glory to himself and not to God. You understand, Saul is an icon. He's a superstar. He's enjoying that celebrity status, the fame, the fortune. His spiritual equilibrium is out of balance. Again, Saul's foolish and unrealistic assessment of himself, his accomplishments with his name on it, serve to remind us that no matter how much we have accomplished in the past, how much we're accomplishing now, how much we're accomplishing in the future, it's all because of God's amazing grace. God woke me up this morning, started me on my way. If it were not, had not been for the Lord, who was on all of our sides, where would we be? If it had not been for God, we wouldn't have our job. Don't think for a moment that you're in your position because you were better qualified than everybody else. You aren't. You're there because God opened the door for you to be there. I don't think for one minute I'm here as pastor of this great church because of my accomplishments. I'm here because of God's amazing grace. There are people all over the country who would love to be here to do what I'm doing. But it's because of God. Saul reminds us, don't you forget that for one minute, the house you reside in, the car you drive, the job you have, is not because of how great you are. It's because of how great, how wonderful, how marvelous, how forgiving God is. So without him, we can do nothing. Jesus said in John 15 and 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. He, she who abides in me and I in him or her shall bear much fruit. For without me, you can do absolutely nothing. And you know, things can change in an instant. I visited a young man in a rehab center. I began to visit him. He was about 25 years old. Had an accident in his car, ran off the road, ran into a pole, and became paralyzed from the neck down. All in an instant. Everything that we have, everything that we are, can be wiped away in one single moment of the day. Things can change. It's not about us. It's all about God. But fourth, in part two of this sermon, fourth, Saul is dominated by falsehood. Falsehood is the art of being dishonest. This art has infiltrated his life to the point that he has become a consummate liar. 
Lying is indicative of several realities in Saul's life. First, his spiritual conviction is wavering. He's lied so much until his spiritual conviction is, 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 is waving. He doesn't have the conviction that he used to have. Second, his conscience is searing. That is, he doesn't feel it like he used to feel it. He's lied so much and he's, he, he's, he's done so much wrong until now his conscience is not, is not bearing the brunt of his decisions like he used to. And third, his relationship with God is unraveling. Why? Because God, because lies destroys relationships and breaks fellowship with God and others. Now, let me, let me share a personal testimony which bears out the truth of this. In, in my life, and it's, it's, it's a little tough because I know, you know, people think that sometimes that, you know, I had this, um, this little childhood where, you know, I did everything people told me to do, and I was, you know, this, this kid that was just on top of everything, but I wasn't. I worked in a neighborhood grocery store owned by a compassionate Jewish man in our community. This Jewish man came in and open up a store, and he was very compassionate, and he, he would let people get stuff on what he called the bill. Some of us remember what, what that, that, that word means. It's that, you know, our people worked on, on during the week, and my grandmother uh, worked for, I think it was like $10 or $20 plus bus fare. You know, she cleaned houses, and people would pay her, and she would, they would give her money to get bus tokens, and, and, and she would say, uh, to Mr. Balama, um, can I get something on the bill? And, and, and he would let her get stuff on the bill, and then she would pay him when she got paid. That's how, it, that's how it worked. And he was just not like that for my grandmother, but he was like that for all the people in the community. I mean, he was a good man, a good-hearted man. And so I was probably about fifth, sixth grade, and, and uh, he gave me a job riding a, a bicycle with a basket on it, and I would deliver groceries into the projects and around to the older people. They didn't have, you know, they couldn't come to the grocery store, so they would call him and make an order, and, and he, would, he would call me by my nickname, which I'm not going to tell y'all what it was, <laughs> and, and he would say, okay, take this around to Miss Walker, and, you know, take this over to Miss Scott, and I would jump on the b- bike and take it, but one day, um, there, there, he, there was a, another guy um, working in the store with me, and he, he was an older guy, and um, he, he kind of dared me, and I took him up on the dare, and I stole a pack of cigarettes, you know, and it wasn't his fault, it was my fault. I stole, I stole the cigarettes. I knew right from wrong, and um, I betrayed his trust, and I stole the, cigar- the cigarettes, and, and then um, Mr. Balama asked me one day, he said, um, did you take a pack of cigarettes? And I said, no, no, I didn't. I didn't take those. I didn't take those cigarettes. And I knew, I saw it in his eyes. He knew I'd lie. And I think my, my body language must have told him that I lied. And, and from that point on, our relationship was never the same. In fact, I quit my job. 
And, and then my aunt would send me, she would say, go, go to the store. The store is right next door to her house. Go to Mr. Balama's store and get me a carton of milk or, or get me a loaf of bread. And instead of going to Balama's grocery, I would go six blocks away or even a mile away because I just didn't want to face him because I had, I had lied to him. And I lived with the guilt of that lie for, for a long, long time. And finally, Mr. Balama um, um, closed up his store, and later in life I heard he, he died. But to this day, I wish I would have had the opportunity to go back and say to him, Mr. Balama, I stole those cigarettes, but I'm really sorry. And I'll make restitution. A wonderful relationship was destroyed because I told a lie. Most of us have read or heard statistics uh, of popular lies that are told in our society. Um, Lies like calling in the work sick. (laughs) I sent you an email. The check is in the mail. I really like how you look in that dress. That really looks good on you. Or lies like cheating on income taxes. It's sad when people take lightly the things which God hates and and, and that are detestable to him. Notice the words of Proverbs 6, 16 through 19 that's related to lying. There are six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him. Haughty eyes, that's arrogance. The Bible says God hates that. A lying tongue. Hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush to evil. Watch this. A false witness who pours out lies and a man who stirs up dissension among brethren. In other words, a man who just keeps things going between the brothers or a woman who does the same thing. But I noticed something here in this text. Lying comes up twice. The danger signs for Saul in place. He's in serious trouble at the core of his relationship with God. Yet, instead of putting the brakes on, instead of turning away from his sinful practices, instead of seeking to get things right between God and himself, he continues trying to lie his way out. Of disobeying God. Notice verse 13. When Samuel reached Saul, Saul said, The Lord bless you. I've carried out the Lord's instruction. In verse 14, but Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of sheep in my ear? What is this lowing of cattle that I hear? Samuel hears the the sound of livestock, and he knows Saul is lying, and he calls him on the carpet. He's saying to him, Saul, If you had really carried out the Lord's commands, there wouldn't be anything left to make noise. No, Saul, you have not obeyed God. You are lying. Saul insists in verse 20, but I did obey the Lord. Saul said, I went on a mission. The Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought 
Agag their king. The reality is Saul didn't completely destroy the Amalekites. He allowed their king to live, others to live. He took the best of cattle. He took the fattest calf, the lambs, and everything that was good in order to benefit himself. Then he lied about it. Now, telling the truth should be a distinctive trademark of every Christian. That's a footnote. Telling the truth should be a distinctive trademark of every Christian. Our word as believers in Jesus Christ who suffered, bled, and died on Calvary's cross rose from the grave to save us from our sins. Our word should be our bond. If people can count on anybody to tell the truth, it ought to be us as Christians. In a world inundated with lies and liars, those who confess faith in Jesus, who declare him to be the way, the truth, and the life, have a divine mandate to hold up his reputation to the highest standard. Telling the truth needs to be practiced specifically within the body of Christ. But also, generally, as we move through the corridors of life at every level, Starting at our homes, in our homes, telling the truth should be paramount. Sister Pickett and always told our children, always told our children, there's one thing we will not tolerate, that's lying. Tell us the truth. You may still get punished, but you will be a lot better off. Do not lie. Should be carried out on our jobs, from our co-workers. At school, students, tell the truth in the neighborhood, between our neighbors, doing business transactions and all interpersonal relationships. Truth-telling should be paramount. Truth on our agenda should not be an afterthought, but a main idea. People should not have cause to second-guess what we say, but take it straight to the bank. And every time, find sufficient funds. Um, This subject of lying um, is a big deal. But you know, it's better to tell the truth. As uh, four high school boys found out, being smitten by a bad case of spring fever, they decided to skip morning classes. And after lunch, they showed up at school and they reported to the teacher that their car had a flat tire. And much to their relief, she smiled at them and she said, well, you missed a quiz this morning. So take your seats, take out a paper and something to write with, and still smiling, she waited as they settled down and got ready for the test. Then she said, with a smile on her face, first question, which tire was flat? It's always best. See, you see, you see, 
there, there's nothing in the dark that not, will not be uncovered. Saul was motivated then by feelings. He was stimulated by fortune. He was intoxicated by fame. He was dominated by for, uh, falsehood. But fifth, Saul was depreciated by finger pointing. That is, the value of Saul's credibility was greatly diminished because he would not stand up and take responsibility for things he did or directed others to do. Sadly, he had become proficient at playing the blame game. I mean, this is something simple, but there have been times I've asked associate pastors to stand up and, and to do something. And, and being obedient to what I told them to do or asked them to do, they came right up and they said exactly what I asked them to say. But it was out of the order of worship. Something had been omitted. Maybe the welcome, maybe the announcements. And so you know what they did? They turned without making excuse. And they took their seats. To which I came behind them and said, Pastor Speed, Pastor Stevens, Pastor Joe did what I asked them to do. It was my fault, my mistake. It's always better to own up and not finger point. Saul was an expert at passing the buck or shifting the blame on to others. Unlike President Harry S. Truman, who had a sign on his desk in the White House, which read, quote, the buck stops here, end quote. Saul's philosophy was pass the buck, point the finger, set others up to fail. Notice the textual evidences of Saul finger pointing in verses 14, 15, and 20. But Samuel said, what then is this bleeding I hear in my ear? What is this lowing of cattle I hear? Verse 15, Saul answers, the soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. Did you get that? It was the soldiers' fault. But Saul, you are the commander. You are the leader. The buck stops with you. But he said, the soldiers. And then he says, they spared the best of the sheep. Samuel, they did it. They spared the best of the sheep and the cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God. But we totally destroyed the rest. Verse 20, finger pointing. But I did obey the Lord, Saul said. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought them back to their king. But verse 21 says, the soldiers, finger pointing, took sheep and cattle from the plunder, the best of what was devoted to God in order to sacrifice them to the Lord your God at Gilgal. Saul failed to come to the place of accepting responsibility for the poor choices he made. That is a formula for failure every time. He constantly placed the blame on others. Later we'll see it as we move further in the series of sermons about David. We'll see that, that, that he blamed David for the loss of the kingdom. 
never looked at himself, never looked at the things that he did. It's David's fault. He blamed Jonathan for helping David to overthrow the kingdom, never looking at it. it was his fault, never looking at his anger, his resentment, his jealousy of David, but he blamed his son Jonathan. In his mind, the soldiers were the blame. The people were the blame. Everybody and anybody was the blame for his downfall except for himself. Have you met people like that? They have more than enough blame to go around. But they never include themselves in the process. Here's some example. It's the president's fault. Um... It's the Congress' fault. It's the Senate's fault. It's, it's, it's the government's fault. It's the coach's fault. If the coach would have only called a different play, it's the quarterback's fault. If he would have stayed in the pocket a little bit longer, he would not ha- have gotten sacked. It's the pastor's fault. It's the deacon's fault. It's It's his fault. It's it's her fault. The sad irony is that most often we, then we would like to admit, we are our own worst enemies. When we, like Saul, fail to take a look at the man and the woman in the mirror and say, it's me, it's me, it's me, oh God. I'm standing in the need of prayer. I'm standing in the need of change. We, like Saul, fail to take responsibility for our bad choices and make the appropriate changes. It's a formula for failure. Instead of fessing up, it's easier to dress it up. Instead of coming clean like Saul, it's more comfortable to play the blame game. Saul sought to cover his disobedience through the use of religion. He said in verse 21, the soldiers took the sheep and cattle for the, for the plunder. The best of what was devoted to God in order to sacrifice them to the Lord your God at Gilgal. Lastly today, we see Saul is a perpetrator of fallacy. In other words, he is one who promotes misleading notions. 21st century counterpart to Saul's perpetration of fallacy would be the person who says, yes, I do play the lotto, but I'm really hoping to win big so I can help the church. Yes, I I did embezzle some money from my, my job. Yes, I did cheat on my taxes, but my real intentions are to contribute to overseas missions. Yes, I did lie to my employers. I did falsify some documents to get greater pay. But I wanted to use the income to support the food drive at my church. As I wrap it up today, Notice Samuel's response to Saul's perpetration of fallacy in verses 22 and 23. Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as obeying the voice of the Lord to obey 
Samuel said it's better than sacrifices. God wants our obedience, not our sacrifices in place of our obedience. And to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination or witchcraft and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord. Saul, God has rejected you as king. There you have it. Saul's formula for failure. 